Everyone, can you please turn your Bibles to Revelation 5, page 1065? Then I saw in the right hand of him who stand who sat on the throne, a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne, and when he had taken it, The four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. The second reading comes from Colossians chapter 2, beginning at verse 6. Spiritual fullness in Christ. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord... Continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in the baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thanks, Kara. Thanks, Lizzie. Uh, my name is Lionel. For those I haven't met, it'd be great to meet you afterwards. I'm going to be speaking uh, on the, uh, the topic of the cross as victory this evening. 
And uh, as we do, let's uh, begin in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do pray that this evening you would help us to hear, to hear what you have to say to us. Help me to speak clearly. And we do pray that you might change our hearts by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, this evening, what I want to do is I want to convince you that by the end of this evening, that your cross is too small. The reason I think your cross is probably too small is that over this week I've been convicted that my cross is too small. And I suspect it's probably true for you as well. Now, I don't mean literally. You know, I'm not saying to you that uh, you've got the wrong size jewellery on or uh, that uh, this big wooden thing, this big wooden cross here at the front of church needs to be supersized or something. Um, that's uh, just an illustration, although it's a great illustration of what I'm wanting to say tonight. It's very big. But what I mean is our view of the power and the significance of the Jesus Christ death on the cross is generally too small. That's true for me. And I suspect it's probably true for you as well. Uh, maybe you think uh, oh, the cross of Jesus Christ is only relevant to one part of your life. Maybe for you the, the death of Christ is just a religious thing, not a thing that's particularly relevant to any other kind of non-religious part of your life. Maybe for you the cross of Jesus Christ is a Sunday thing and doesn't really have any relevance to Monday and Tuesday and all the other days of the week. Maybe for you, Jesus' death on the cross is like, like an insurance policy. It's like a ticket to heaven that God's given to you uh, to pull out at the pearly gates when you get there and show it to, uh, to those who are going to let you in and say, hey, Jesus has died on the cross, let me into heaven. Maybe for you, Jesus' death on the cross is just something to kickstart your Christian life, but it doesn't really have anything to do with the rest of your Christian life. Maybe for you, Jesus' death on the cross is just a doctrine you can tick off, an intellectual truth that fits neatly into all the other intellectual truths in your mind, in, in the well-arranged doctrines together. If that is the case, then your cross is too small. Now, let me ask you some questions to help you to see what I mean. What are you afraid of? What threatens you deep down? Right now, when you pause and reflect, what, what threatens you? What are you afraid of? What will you be afraid of tomorrow? What, what are you afraid of on Father's Day? What are you afraid of at night when you can't sleep for worry? What are you afraid of at home? What are you afraid of at work or school? What are you afraid of in your future? Now consider those threats, those powers that you're afraid of. And in your fear, where do you turn to overcome them? And does your answer have anything to do with Jesus' death on the cross? Is your overcoming, your conquest, your triumph, your victory caught up in the cross of Jesus Christ. If that's not the case, then your cross is too small. Because in the Bible, Jesus' death on the cross is God's victory. 
Uh, there's lots of, uh, of verses in the Bible that talk about it, that God's victory, that the cross is God's overcoming, his conquest, his triumph, a triumph that Christ shares with all who trust in him. Here's just some examples, some of the passages in the Bible describing God's victory and linking that victory to Jesus Christ's work and especially his death on the cross. 1 John chapter 3, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Hebrews chapter 2, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. Colossians chapter 1, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Or Revelation chapter 5, which we, we just heard. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the centre of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. And that's just a small sample of the victory passages in the Bible. It's everywhere. God's victory is found in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. So I have three key points for us this evening. Firstly, Christ's atoning death for our sins is at the very centre, the very heart of his victory. Secondly, Christ's death brings victory over every power that threatens us. And thirdly, we must always look to Christ's death for our victory. So firstly, Christ's Atoning death for our sins is at the very heart of his victory. What I mean is this. If you want to know God's victory, first you need to see and know what Jesus Christ has achieved in his death on the cross. So this sermon on on the cross as victory is actually the last sermon in a series on the atonement. And that's deliberate. Because in this series, we've been exploring together the great truths of the cross of Jesus Christ and what it's achieved. And we've gone deep, haven't we? If you remember what we've we've learned, we've seen that the cross achieved atonement. That means Jesus Christ has brought reconciliation between human beings and God, made us at one with God for all who trust in him. How's the cross done that? Well, we've seen over the last few weeks from the Bible that Jesus' death is a sacrifice. The cross brings cleansing, purification, true worship. That Jesus died as a substitute. We've seen that through Jesus, he was always perfect uh, and he never deserved God, God, death and God's judgment. He died in our place, taking that upon himself so that we could go free, be forgiven as sinners, forgiven. Jesus died as a propitiation. Uh, that's an older word. That, that means Jesus died to turn away God's wrath. Jesus' death deals with God's righteous anger and judgment against our sin. And Jesus died as a ransom. Jesus' death was a a great price paid to bring us freedom, freedom from sin and death, to make us free to serve God. And those truths help us to make sense of the cross, Christ's atoning death for sins. And so when the Bible describes God's victory through Jesus, Christ's atoning death for sins is always right at the heart of this victory. 
So, for example, Paul opens his letter to the Galatians and he opens it describing how God has rescued us from, from the evils of this world. And he says, how well? By Christ being a substitute and ransom. The Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Romans chapter 8. Paul rejoices. I'm just getting the right verse here. There we go. There it is. I went too too far past it. Romans chapter 8. Paul rejoices that God is for us and nobody can be against us. Why? Because Jesus Christ's death is a propitiation and a substitute and a sacrifice. Paul says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh... God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And then what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Revelation chapter 5. There John sees a vision of heavenly praise and worship. He sees a vision of how Jesus is the conquering lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. But in the song, the reason that Jesus is the conquering lion is because he's also the sacrificial lamb and the ransom for our sins. And so they sing to the lamb. They sing, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. Christ's death is victory and at the very heart of that victory is all these things that we've seen over the last few weeks. The substitution, the propitiation, the ransom, the sacrifice. Why am I stressing this point? Well, because sometimes you will hear people teaching about Jesus' death or or, or God's victory or or, or Christ's victory uh, and and teaching about, about victory but without teaching about these other things. Proclaiming that Christ brings triumph, release from chains and captivity and a victorious life, but without explaining why. But we need to know the why. We need to know the why or it doesn't work. If you don't get those other things, you won't get the victory. Without sacrifice and substitution and propitiation and ransom, there is no victory. So God is victorious. But the crucial battle at the heart of God's victory is Christ's atoning death for our sins. It's like like D-Day in World War II. If you know a bit of history, you know a little bit about World War II. D-Day is the day when the Allies landed and it was the crucial turning point for victory in the war. But when they landed and they had that victory there, they were able to go on and liberate Europe. Or if you're more familiar with modern classics, it's like the Lord of the Rings. The Lord of the Rings, it's a story that's actually influenced in many ways, both by the wars of the 20th century and also, in many ways, by the Bible. And in the Lord of the Rings, when everyone is looking for victory and strength and power in military might and armies, the key thing that wins the war is a tiny hobbit, little creature, and a tiny evil ring falling into a fire. And when that happens, victory everywhere. Well, that's like the cross. The crucial thing that wins the victory. Christ's atoning death for our sins is the crucial thing at the heart of God's victory. In fact, do you know where the word crucial comes from? If you say this is crucial, do you know where the word comes from? It means cross-shaped. 
because it's got to do with the cross. It's come into our language because the cross is at the heart of God's victory, the decisive, the one thing. And yeah, that's why we Christians sing so much about the cross. We sing for lots of reasons. One reason that we sing, one great reason to sing, is that we rejoice in God's victory and triumph and power. And at the heart of all this is Christ's death on the cross for us. So how do you know you've got a good Christian victory song? Well, you know it when the song leads you to sing clearly and powerfully about Christ's atoning death. We've actually seen that in the songs that we've sung already at church. And uh, here's, here's a song that we, we're going to sing uh, afterwards as we, as we take the Lord's Supper. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. It's a victory song. It's a song of confidence in battle. But do you see how the song points us explicitly to Christ's substitution and ransom? O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, strong defender of my weary heart, my sword to fight the cruel deceiver and my shield against his hateful darts, my song when enemies surround me, my hope when tides of sorrow rise, my joy when trials are abounding, your faithfulness, my refuge in the night. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, gracious saviour of my ruined life, My guilt and cross laid on your shoulders. In my place you suffered, bled and died. You rose, the grave and death are conquered. You broke my bonds of sin and shame. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, may all my days bring glory to your name. As we sing, as we sing together these songs of victory and confidence in God, we sing with joy, rejoicing in the cross and sing with knowledge. Because we know why Jesus has died for us. So that's the first point. Christ's atoning death for our sins is at the heart of his victory. So don't lose sight of that. But the second point is something that we need to grasp as well. Christ's death brings victory over every power that threatens us. It's actually the reverse of the first point. I want to sort of flip it around what I've, what I've just said, that yes, the focus of Christ's victory is his atoning death on the cross and all those things that we've seen, but the scope of Christ's death is huge, vast, vaster than we might imagine. Christ's death is not just one piece of the puzzle in God's acts. Christ's death is the epicentre of an earthquake for God's enemies, and it destroys all the things that threaten us, and its implications in the end are huge. How does that work? How exactly is Christ's death a victory for God and for us? How does that actually work? What's the logic? How to spell it out? Well, let's look at that passage in Colossians that we saw, which is one of our readings. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Here's the logic. Here's how Christ's death achieves victory. First, Christ's death is a victory over sin. Our sin, our rejection of God. It's what we all do and it comes out in the things that we have done wrong. Perhaps those things that you were reflecting on in that time when Ed led us in confession earlier. That is an expression of our rebellion against God. It's something that we're all caught up in and it makes us guilty before God. And it brings God's wrath against us and God's judgment. It means we face judgment and with those sins without Christ, we face hell. 
It's a great enemy. But God has done something about this enemy. God has provided his son, Jesus, who died on the cross to bring that complete and perfect forgiveness of sins for all who come to him and trust in him. And that means sin, our sin. It's no longer a power that that stands against us. There's no record of wrongs. There's no register recording everything we've ever done. You could think, well, I've I've sinned, and if only you knew what I'd done, that it's there, it's burdening me, it's it's weighing me down, and it's written there, and, and, and I can't get rid of it. It's gone. It's been nailed to the cross, that record of wrongs. And that means our guilt before God is gone. Jesus has taken it upon himself, extinguished it, and destroyed it. And he's given us, then, the power to live new lives by God's Holy Spirit. Secondly, the cross is God's victory over death. Death is something we all face. And sickness, disease... All those things is all caught up in us. We live in mortal bodies. We live in a, in a death-bound world. And the statistics tell us that death happens to 100% of us. I thank God for doctors who can help us. And it's wonderful that we have doctors, but nobody has yet invented a cure for death itself. No, I don't want to embarrass him, but I ask Moritz every so often. You know, I, I, I annoy him, I think. I ask him, have we invented... Yeah, about once a year. I say, have we invented a cure for death? And still, still the case, Moritz? No, still no cure for death. Okay, yeah, that's still the case. In fact, I believe the heart surgeons are doing such a great job as they're making a hold of work for the kidney specialists because, you know, they're just keeping people alive so that their kidneys can fail. It's, we have not defeated death. Death is our great enemy. And it's one of those things that's 100% true, but also 100% wrong. It's not the way it should be. Death in this world is actually part of God's judgment for our sin against him. And you may be touched by death in personally in a, in, a, in a deep way. And if not, you will be. And yet, when Jesus died for our sins... He took that death. He faced God's judgment. He defeated death. He brought us life. Jesus' death guarantees us everlasting life. And in the end, death will not have the last word. And that's why Jesus' death is so intimately caught up in his resurrection. You can't separate the two. Jesus died to bring us life. And so he rose from the dead in a new body that is not subject to death, redeemed. And when Jesus returns, he will raise our mortal bodies to be like his glorious body. The resurrection proves that Jesus is victorious over death. And thirdly, that means that Christ's death is a victory over the devil. It's a victory over Satan. And a victory over all of Satan's spiritual powers and authorities that otherwise might stand against us. The word Satan, you know what it means? It means accuser. Because that's Satan's great power. The power of accusation. It's what Satan is. It's his key power. He accuses us before God. And without Jesus, Satan has a real claim on us. 
Because we are sinners and we are subject to death and Satan has power and authority over us because his accusation sticks and we're condemned and he can claim us and he can say they're they're mine. But Jesus' death on the cross rescues us from Satan and from all the spiritual powers and authorities that are his because there is no condemnation, there is no accusation. So I'll read Revelation chapter 12. Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him, how? By the blood of the Lamb. Christ's death is a triumph over Satan. And so we don't need to be afraid of him or any spiritual powers. And in fact, if Christ's death rescues us from these great spiritual powers and authorities, that also means his death ultimately rescues us from all earthly powers and authorities and things that can threaten us. We have life. We have eternal life. What earthly power can take that away? I was just reading recently the story of a very early Christian in the first century, in the, in the second century, of a guy called Polycarp. And he was hauled before the authorities and told, you must uh, deny the Christian faith and you must pledge allegiance to the emperor and worship him like a, like a god. And he said, no, I, I will not. Uh, they said uh, to him, you must say away with the atheists because they thought of Christians as atheists uh, because Christians didn't worship you know, anything that they could see. And Polycarp turns to the crowd, to the emperor and the authorities, and he says, away with the atheists. And he's taken away. And he has the strength to do that because he knows that there is no condemnation for him and he knows that he has eternal life. And he knows that his sins are forgiven and he knows he can have confidence before his Lord and Saviour because God has sent his son Jesus Christ. If God is for us, who can be against us? And how wonderful this is. But, you know, it's something I keep forgetting. I do keep forgetting it. And when I do, I get afraid. And I sometimes lie awake at night with worry, worrying about things in life and things that are coming up and afraid for my future, afraid for security and future and health of my loved ones and all those things. And I am weak. And yet, when I remember how big the cross really is, and come to God and pray to him and know that he loves me deeply and he knows my weakness and he knows that I get afraid. But I look to him and know that he has triumphed over sin and death and Satan forever. That gives me security and strength. So Christ's death is our victory. And that means we must always look to Christ's death for our victory. Because it's really easy to look for our victory in other places, especially when we're threatened by enemies. Oh, it's becoming harder to be a Christian in this country, isn't it? You know, in many ways, being a Christian, it's not often seen as just unpopular or weird anymore. Often it's seen as dangerous and kind of people say things about Christians and it's, it's hard and it's hard if you're at work and in the workplace and all, all over the place. And of course... It is far worse for our Christian brothers and sisters throughout the world in many places. 
Uh, here's a, a headline from a prayer bulletin I was reading this week, just one headline from this prayer bulletin. Several hundred Christians killed, villages decimated as merciless wave of militant Fulani attacks sweep northern Nigeria. Christians are persecuted throughout the world. So, when we are slandered or persecuted, what are we tempted to do? Where are we tempted to look for our own victory? Well, maybe we're tempted to find our security by appealing to the law, appealing to the courts, maybe trying to win over public opinion, maybe by trying to do everything we possibly can to fight for our rights, and then, then we'll have victory if we, can, if we can do that. Now, of course, it's not wrong to look for justice in this world. You know, write to your local member about religious freedom bill that's coming up and, and that sort of thing. Do that. Seek freedom where we can. But we must never get caught up thinking that human justice is going to be our ultimate victory. First and foremost, it's the cross where we need to look for our victory and security. And that's actually why the book of Revelation was written. Revelation was written to Christians facing persecution. It was written to remind them that in the face of of terrible injustice, they're far worse than we face, far, far worse. In the face of that, the lamb is on the throne. And he has, in fact, won the victory. So we don't need to fight for it. We need to come to him. And this is what the risen and victorious lamb says. Revelation chapter 3. He says, To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. It doesn't necessarily mean that all the injustices of the world will necessarily be righted in our lifetimes. It doesn't mean that we won't face danger or hardship ourselves. But it does mean something far greater that God, through Christ, has won the ultimate victory and he's wiped away our sins and he will grant us eternal life. And in our own spiritual lives, we must always look to Christ's death for our victory. And that's true in in our our spiritual lives, in when you're feeling spiritually dry, when you feel you're losing the battle in your Christian life, when you struggle against sin, sin's pressing in and you're feeling spiritually empty, Where do you look for fullness and victory? When Paul wrote his letter to the Colossians, he was writing to people who attempted to look elsewhere for spiritual victory. He was writing to people who attempted to look to various things like special spiritual practices involving food and drink or they were tempted to look for powerful worship experiences that they called the worship of angels, being caught up with the angels for their fullness They were tempted to look to detailed visions and prophecies of heavenly things to give them a full experience of God's power for victory and fullness. And so Paul wrote to them and he said, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. And what Paul does here is that he reminds them that they already have victory. It's there. It's in Christ. Christ has won the battle over the powers and they need to press in to him, to his victory over sin and death and to rejoice in it and continue in it and love it more and more and continue just to live and love and follow and serve him. Maybe you need to do that. Maybe you need to stop running after other sources of victory, practice or promises, preachers of power or prosperity whatever it is, but simply stop, press into Christ and his victory. 
and pray and remember and experience the sweetness of Christ's death and you. And remember how wonderful it is, even when life is hard. And when you're facing sickness, when you're facing mental illness, when you're facing death itself, these are all things that can be powerful enemies, aren't they? And they can seem so overwhelming and they can drive us to despair. And of course, it's right to look to other sources of help in this life. Look to doctors, look to counsellors. They're very helpful things. But even as we do, we must never forget Christ and his victory, his victory over sin and ultimately his victory over death. You know, as you read the Gospels, you read about Jesus who met and healed many people. And he did it out of compassion. But each one of those healings was a sign pointing to something greater, pointing to the future kingdom, the new creation, where there is no death or mourning or crying or pain. Christ has won that kingdom for us. And he's done it by his death on the cross, by dying for our sins, in our place, to turn away God's wrath, to take God's judgment upon himself, to pay that penalty of death for us, to free us from sin, to give us life, to cleanse us and purify us and enable us to live as God's holy and clean and loved children. And so to win victory over sin, death and Satan. And he is risen from the dead. Christ has not given us a promise that our sickness will be removed entirely in this life. He may do that and if he does, that's wonderful and we can rejoice in that. We can pray for it too. But in his victory, the promise he has given us is a far greater promise. It's a promise sure and certain that those in Christ will rise with perfect bodies and will live. And this is victory. And you have it. So live it if you're in Christ. What else are you afraid of? Are you afraid of trouble? Are you afraid of hardship? Are you persecution of poverty? Are you afraid of Danger, violence, angels and demons? Are you afraid of the powers that be? Are you afraid of authorities that oppress you? Are you afraid for your present? Are you afraid for your future? Christ has the victory. He's won the victory over our greatest enemies, sin, death, Satan, and that gives us confidence in our relationship with God in everything else. This is how to live. So I want to finish on Romans chapter 8, this wonderful chapter of the Bible. Paul talks about our justification, that is our our right standing before God, won by Jesus, by his death on the cross. And what Paul does is in Romans chapter 8, he brings us into God's heavenly law court. And he brings us in and actually asks the question, you know, where's where's the accuser? Where's the prosecutor in here? Because you need a prosecutor in the law court. Where is he? Well, he's not there. We're justified, we're forgiven, free of charge, not guilty, no condemnation. But what Paul then does, he doesn't leave us in the law course because he takes us then on a journey into all creation and he expands our horizons and blows them apart and he he shows us how Jesus Christ's death for our sins, his sacrifice, substitution, propitiation, ransom, his cross 
It's, it's not just a barren doctrine or a religious symbol that you can confine to Sundays. No, Christ's death on the cross is the epicenter of this joyous earthquake of victory and confidence for all those in Christ in everything. So Romans chapter 8. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.